Kim Carson. And I'm Peter Klein. And this is We Had No Idea. Episode 23. On the road. (laughs) Yep. For me, anyway. (laughs) We come to you, well... I come to you from Okinsis, and I acknowledge that I get the privilege of living and producing this show on the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Tsutsuna Nations, the Iahe Nakoda Nations, the Métis Nation Region 3, and all people who make their homes on the Treaty 7 region of Southern Alberta. And I want to acknowledge that in Saskatchewan, I am also on treaty land. These treaties serve to govern our relationships with Indigenous people. We have come together today on Treaty 4 territory, which is the traditional territory of the Nehya, Cree, Salto, Dakota, Lakota, Nakota, and formerly Blackfoot. I also acknowledge the traditional homeland of the Métis and honor their contributions. It is important that we recognize that we have all benefited and all have responsibilities under these agreements. I acknowledge the harms and injustices of the past and present, and I dedicate our efforts to working together in a spirit of collaboration and reconciliation. We are all on treaty land. Our sources for the program. Hold on, hold on. Sorry. You can find out what native lands you're on by looking at native-land.ca. Okay, now sources. Okay. <laughs> Our sources for the show today, uh, theglobalmail.com, the canadianencyclopedia.ca, atlasobscuria.com, heritagesask.ca, writing Canada's wrongs, the Chinese head tax, a book by Arlene Chan, and terrible regional rural southern Saskatchewan internet. Terrible. You're yes. already cutting out. Oh, lovely. so thank you for downloading this episode the proverbial you Mm -hmm. for uh downloading this and hopefully peter is not skipping in your ears like he is in mine uh (laughs) but if he is i apologize and thank you thank you for downloading uh week after week we really appreciate it and look it's the name of the show and we say it mm, essentially every week but I had no idea mm-hmm. about um, like, you know, there is a lot of Asian hate, I think, um, especially during this pandemic and obviously before. Uh, but I did not know that Chinese people specifically uh, were like targeted in Canada. Um, there. Yeah, it just is wild that all of this happened. And uh, again, I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, I, I had a general sense that it probably wasn't awesome, uh, but I didn't realize to the lengths with which it lacked awesomeness. Um, this was this was a, a real tough one to to get through, and we'll, we'll get into it a little bit more later on and how it ties in with the tourist attraction that is 100 kilometers north of where I'm talking to you right now. But it is... Yeah, quite the quite the story to go through, and just we 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 could rename some of these podcasts um, or the the title of the show of Canada has really sucked for a while for a lot of people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, this one uh, definitely had um, ringings of the indigenous episodes that we did. Mm-hmm. Uh, just you know, it's like people being targeted for who they are, and they're getting less than white people, and yeah, yeah. A so lot of that. with so that thank you. build up, let's get this going. <laughs> um, oh, I guess we didn't actually say we're talking about the Moose Jaw Tunnels and uh, 
the uh, anti-Chinese movement and the head tax that was associated with uh, the Moose Jaw Tunnels and all mm-hmm. of Canada. Yeah, and while researching this, a lot of the stories are, well, how accurate is it? And a, a lot of the stories were, well, it wasn't really that bad, which was repulsive mm-hmm. to read. Um, so I left the Moose Jaw anecdotes to more quotes and uh, again, anecdotes uh, from people who were around at the time. And there was a couple of stories. That's where the Globe and Mail came in um, that they helped out with that one. And then kind of use this a bit more as a a vessel to talk about how awful it was for Chinese people, which was not necessarily the thought going in. uh, But I I think this is going to be ended up being a pretty important episode. Yeah, I think so, too. Yeah. Uh, so with that, the anti-Chinese movement took root after the first wave of Chinese immigrants began arriving in British Columbia, BC, for the gold rush in 1858. There were a group of 50 Chinese people who originally came over in 1788, another made up year, but many young <laughs> Chinese men trying to escape poverty and starvation in China came to what would become Canada, uh, which had become known to them as Gold Mountain. Hmm. So... A uh, couple thoughts. Uh, number one, we really uh, won the lottery being born in Canada, yep. uh, being born white, mm-hmm. uh, and also uh, that we get to be alive in the 2000s. Oh. <laughs> that we get to be here in 2021 is pretty fucking sick when you have a history podcast and you just keep hearing about how hard life was basically pre-1960s. I would have been dysenteried so quick. I, yeah, I, Instantly. I would have been, yeah, I, I, I would have had no hope of surviving in any era other than the one I was born into. Um, and in any, with any sort of hardship whatsoever, um, that even remotely close to what a lot of these people have faced, I, I would have this, absolutely folded. This would have been your lifeline ready. Born dysentery. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, Mine how, might've been. Go ahead. Mine might have been born. Dysentery. Yeah. Mine, <laughs> like on the, the headstones where they have the dash in the middle, it wouldn't even be that. It would have been um, hmm. 1858 dysentery, 1859. That's like they, they wouldn't have even bothered with the dash. They just would have been. Yeah. No, no that this is what dysentery. happened to this guy. We have covered your this headstone, man's entire life. Your headstone would just say dysentery. No years, no name. <laughs> right. <laughs> Oh, um, also, before we get too far into this, I forgot that I, uh, I wanted to say something about, um, the end of our last episode when we, uh, broached the subject of doing the moose jaw tunnels for this week. Mm -hmm. And we talked about how you hit your head when you were in the tunnels. Yes. And, uh, my sister pointed out that people don't really know that you're extremely tall. So, uh, it just would maybe sound a little funny for people who don't know you that are listening right. to hear you say, yeah, I hit my head a lot. Like as if you just have like, you know, a shit time moving around in the world, <laughs> yeah. uh, which you do, but it's because you're tall. It was just some weird final destination stuff that things kept swinging down and hitting me. I'm actually five, <laughs> nine. Uh, no, I'm not extremely tall, but I am, I'm certainly above average height. So yes, mm-hmm. uh, that, that, that does explain a lot of the bumping of one's cranium uh, whilst in the tunnels of Musha. Um, anyway, back on track here. The second major Chinese immigration to BC came as laborers for the construction of the Canadian Pacific Railway, a labor force needed for the development of Western Canada. But 
not desirable as citizens, considering there was a slogan at the time that stated white Canada forever. And it was popular. Problematic. Yes, yes. Uh, popular Highly not only amongst those who uh, were everyday citizens, but among politicians at the time, who we are finding out more and more are just the absolute worst. This slogan and ideas of a white Canada are reflected in the Immigration Act of 1910. And while the act did not name any, uh, any racial or ethnic groups, it did allow for the restriction of immigrants belonging to any race deemed unsuited to the climate or requirements of Canada, the ethnic basis for Canadian immigration policy until 1967. Mm. Okay, so I take back what I said earlier and that life was easy or life was really hard pre-1960s. Um, go Going to go ahead and rescind that to uh, 1990s. Fair point. Uh, Chinese people had a head tax imposed on them because fuck everything. Uh, this was in 1885. The only immigrants subject to these fees, by the way, uh, the tax was set at $50. And by 1903, it was up at $500. Um, so hmm. the, you know, minimum wage in the United States hasn't really met with inflation for a while, but we were certainly able to make sure that the Chinese head tax, I, I would say raised up past inflation rates of 1903. What do you think $500 in 1903 could buy you today? Oh, gee, probably the house that we're sitting in right now. Yeah. Or I'm sitting in right now. <laughs> Maybe the one you're into. Um, Both. Yes. Yeah, probably. Yeah. No, that, that would have been, yeah, that would have been absurd. Uh, so while this head tax was absurd, it did become clear that the entry fee did not discourage Chinese immigration as intended. The Chinese population tripled during the head tax era from 13,000 people in 85, sorry, 1885 to 39,587 in 1921. A harsher solution naturally was the next step. Right. Exclusion. So on July 1st of 1923, which is indeed Canada Day, the Chinese Immigration Act, a new law, uh, was passed. The Chinese in Canada refer to this holiday as Humiliation Day, and uh, some refused to join in its celebrations uh, for many years and probably uh, until this day. And also, if you struggle with celebrating Canada Day uh, in 2021 and beyond, uh, here's another reason to not to. <laughs> right. Uh, the Chinese Immigration Act was an overwhelming success if you were one of the white Canada supporters. During the exclusionary years, fewer than 50 five zero Chinese immigrants were allowed entry. The population decreased by 25% from that number of 39,587 in 1921 to just under 33,000 by 1951. The blockades to immigration left Chinese men in Canada without their families uh, and no way to reconnect them in Canada, leading many to go back home to China. Um, but of course, they had left China because of poverty and starvation, and they were trying to build a better lives for themselves. So, like, just think of, I mean, it, it's impossible for us to because we have a brain in our head, but just think like how just absolutely racist you have to be just from an economic standpoint that you're going mm -hmm. to turn away $35,000 because of this stupid racist thing that you've put on by decreasing the, the population of the, the people that are coming in. Like it's just, uh, but just from a dollars and cents standpoint, it's ridiculous. And then when you 
lump in the whole, it's a terrible thing to do to any human being. It it just, it's absolutely appalling. Right. But I mean, we see a lot with racism that um, the people that are experiencing racism uh, usually aren't thought of as human. Like that's the key element. That's why we can never understand because they are human to us (laughs) Mm -hmm. and deserve you know, a base level of human respect at the very least. Um, but you know, when you have this kind of mentality, they don't even have that. Yeah. Uh, as with most things, the great depression didn't help things. And it certainly didn't make anything easier for Chinese people living in Canada. The Chinese specific unemployment rate got up to 80% in Vancouver compared to 30.2% unemployment rate for the rest of Vancouver. Lots of Chinese people turned to their traditional associations for financial assistance. Those who had to rely on the government received relief payments of $1.12 per week in Alberta, which is less than half of what was given to other Albertans. Because again, people were the worst. I I said were, people are the worst. Uh, News from China did not bring any comfort during these exclusionary years. Civil wars of the ruling party against military landlords and rising communist forces, as well as external threats from Japan, started with uh, starting with small scale incidents that escalated to the outbreak of the Sino-Japanese War in 1937 and the occupation of China. Uh, The flow of letters and money being sent home was interrupted particularly after the Japanese captured Hong Kong and the safety and well-being of family members in China was unknown to uh, the family members living in Canada. How horrible must that have been? Like you're getting, you're unemployed at almost three times the rate of anyone else where you're living. Uh, Mm -hmm. If you are getting relief, it is half of what everyone else is getting. And you can't communicate with people who you have to leave at home because you can't afford to bring them here because they've just been occupied by another country. That sounds um, like hell. In in my next little paragraph where I talk after you talk, I have a side note about this exact thing. Okay, then we will put a pin in that. Uh, the Second <laughs> World War marked a turning point in the Chinese-Canadian history, surprisingly enough. The war provided an opportunity for volunteer service ultimately to prove one's loyalty and patriotism and gain the right to vote. The issue, however, was a polarizing one in the Chinese community, and it divided people into two factions. There was the serve first, demand rights after, versus no vote, no fight. Um, And you certainly can see where they are coming from. The declaration- Yeah, totally. Um, You've just been treated like dog shit this whole time. And now you want to go risk your life or you want me to go risk my life for this place that's treated me this way the whole time? Get bent. But Mm -hmm. um, again, as we've talked about in other episodes, the the strength of these people is absolutely incredible. Mm -hmm. Uh, The declaration of war against Japan in 1941 was another tipping point as Canada and China were now aligned, fighting together against a common enemy. In 1941, there were 29,033 Chinese men in Canada, over 80% of whom were uh, married with wives and children left behind in China. Enduring this family separation, these, quote, married bachelors lived on their own. A handful had the financial means to make a trip to China a few times a year during, uh, during the exclusionary years, 
whether or not they were Canadian born or naturalized, they were not allowed to sponsor family members to join them in Canada and being outside of Canada for two years or more would result in a loss of immigration status. So while this is going on, while they are helping out with the country or just before they're helping out with the country, uh, it, it still super duper sucks for them. Um, that term naturalized that you said? Yes. Uh, that was something I read in the writing um, Canada's Wrongs book. Mm-hmm. So the naturalization is um, Chinese people had to uh, go in front of a judge, like in a court and be like, um, I, I am a person <laughs> and I would like Jeez. rights. Uh, and 5% of the people who petitioned for it were actually naturalized. Oh, that's awful. Yeah, so not a big number. No. <laughs> uh, the war's end in 1945 brought a feeling of peace, uh, favorable media coverage, and growing respect for the Chinese community's war effort in military service. Um, so here's my side note, uh, basically about how uh, strong um, Chinese people are. So while the war was going on uh, and, you know, they're volunteering for service um, and like, you know, also a bunch of racist stuff is happening to them. They're not getting jobs. They're being, you know, complained about and blamed for everything Uh, while all that's going on uh, and China is being occupied by Japan. Chinese people are hosting parades, fundraisers, charity drives, like anything they can to send money back home. Uh, and give to charities in China that support Chinese people that are affected by the war, including like war orphans. Like, wow. are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. You wonder why respect grew for these people as if it like shouldn't have just been given. <laughs> yeah, Anyways. that's incredible. Yeah. Uh, demands for the Canadian government to repeal its anti-Chinese legislation began from other political parties, churches, and laborers. An additional pressure point in 1945 was the United Nations Charter of Human Rights and subsequent Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Canada was obviously, you know, not in line with this because of the anti-Chinese policies, which should probably, when someone comes out with a thing called the Charter of Human Rights and you're doing something that's against it, that seems like a problem. Seems like a pretty obvious, um, my bad guys. Yeah. So in 1947, Canada repealed the Chinese Immigration Act. As much as the language of exclusion was removed, Chinese immigrants were still treated unfairly due to an order that stated entrance was limited to only spouses and children under the age of 18. For other immigrants, there were no such restrictions. Delegations of Chinese and non-Chinese individuals made annual visits to Ottawa to lobby for an immigration policy that would ease family reunification. Men in the bachelor society uh, who dreamed of bringing their families to Canada were largely disappointed for another 20 years. Mm -hmm. Which leads us to 1967. Immigration restrictions on the basis of race and national origin are finally removed. Chinese immigrants can now apply for entry on equal footing with other applicants. Uh, At the onset of the Chinese Immigration Act, prejudice and discrimination were already well entrenched and Chinese people were reduced to second class status as inferior races. 
Um, sorry, it says in our script, it says, see racism. Um, and I decided <laughs> to leave that in because that was uh, from the, uh, the, the Canadian encyclopedia where <laughs> it, it just, it, it felt like such a, uh, like it, it was linking to a story about the, the history of racism. Right. Um, and, and it just, it, it just seemed like such a, an interesting um, I guess side note uh, on that, where it was such as inferior races also see racism. Like it's very, it seems very tongue in cheek. Like I edited these notes and I left it in there because that's exactly what I thought it was. Yeah, exactly. They were seen as inferior. See racism. Yes. <laughs> uh, legislation barred them from the right to vote, to hold public office or to own property, limited employment, housing, and many other restrictions. Protest from, uh, this okay this was another little side note i had so mm -hmm. white workers protested uh chinese workers not because they thought that you know chinese workers were getting an unfair deal oh. uh, but because the white workers wanted more money for their work and they were mad that chinese people would do the same job for less money <laughs> so it's a very much they're taking our jobs situation yeah, yeah. the trucker jobs the trucker jobs <laughs> like shut the fuck up yeah uh labor unions dampen their ability to earn a living as well still burdened by paying off debts incurred by the head tax they also earned lower wages uh bearing such harsh conditions chinese people retreated into small businesses such as laundries restaurants and grocery stores uh this is also why we see so many cities across canada with chinatowns chinese people were forced oh. to stay in in like an area together um, during these exclusionary years. Um, and that really only strengthened their bonds with each other. And then they were able to open up shops themselves in their own neighborhoods, in their Chinatowns. Um, and that led them to decreased interactions with white people who discriminated against them. I did not put all of that together. And that makes me yeah. very sad. Um, right. But, and now it's like, you know, I think about the Chinatown in Calgary mm -hmm. and, um, that's actually like where it is right now is not where it was because, uh, I believe it burned down twice. Oh, dang. and so just kept having to move. And, um, I would have to look into it more, but I will speculate, uh, because I love to fucking speculate. <laughs> um, I don't think that it was like a rogue candle. I think that it was like mobs. Ah, uh huh. So that also happened. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um. So that leads us to, what does this have to do with Moose Jaw and its tunnels? Well, work began on the tunnels <laughs> in about 1908. The tunnels were underground, which most tunnels are. Uh, utility lines <laughs> connecting most basements of houses and businesses together so boilermakers and utility personnel could get from one place to another without going outside and also kept utility lines warmer and undamaged in the winters. When they came to Moose Jaw, um, Chinese workers were employed as servants, railroad workers, miners, or laundry workers. The Chinese people hid in the tunnels to avoid the head tax. Because of their low wages, the Chinese were unable to pay the head tax. They also went in the tunnels to avoid the, quote, yellow peril. Uh, at the time, there was a lot of anti-Chinese people in Moose Jaw. This sent the Chinese people to hide underground to escape criticism from locals. After many Chinese people 
people were killed or attacked in Moose Jaw, many others chose to go underground to be safe. The tunnels were an ideal place for them to hide because of the boilers in the tunnels that kept them warm. Uh, these facts shed a light on how badly Chinese people were treated in the early 20th century. So that is where one of the first um, or one of the tunnels tours kind of starts off with letting you know, hey, by the way, it was really shitty here uh, for, I mean, it's it, Moose Jaw, so for everyone, but specifically for Chinese people, uh, it was absolutely dreadful. Yeah. Um, sorry, I'm just looking up. What was that tunnel tour called? Passage to Fortune. Yes. Which is such an uplifting uh, title for something where people were like, we're literally getting attacked and killed above ground. Yeah. So guess I'll live in a tunnel. Yeah. What a nice way to put that. Oh. Uh, evidence suggests that the tunnels were used for many years. Uh, the railway workers managed to bring women to live uh, with them and even raise children in the tunnels. Oh. Uh, but the tunnels acquired a whole new purpose. Let's take a fucking real big Larry here. <laughs> uh, a whole new purpose in the 1920s when the United States, sorry, if we had like a producer for this podcast <laughs> and it wasn't just us, this is where like a sound, like a sound bed would come in of like bottles clinking and people laughing and having a good yeah. time. Da, 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 da. <laughs> When the United States uh, and much of Canada embarked in prohibition as a major uh, Canadian Pacific Railway terminal linked to the United States by the Sioux Line, Moose Jaw was ideally situated to become a bootlegging hub. The city's remote location also made it a good place to escape U.S. police. Um, so, yeah, the Sioux Line that is in Moose Jaw yep. goes basically straight to Chicago. Mm. Uh-huh. That helps. That helps. That helps. Uh, it also helps that the entire local police force, including Chief Walter Johnson, were in cahoots with the bootleggers. Local historians say Johnson ran Mooshaw like a personal playground for 20 years. The tunnels were used for gambling, prostitution, and warehousing illegal booze. So uh, white people use them for different purposes than uh, what they were initially used for. Um, one tunnel went right under the CPR station and opened into a shed in the rail yards. It was possible to load and unload rail cards without being seen. Uh, Lawrence Moon Mullen, who was 11 at the time, says that Chief Johnson would occasionally stop by his newspaper stand as Johnson paid his nickel, he would whisper into the kid's ear, there's going to be a big storm tonight. Mullen knew what those words meant, that a raid was coming uh, from the Saskatchewan Liquor Commission, who weren't as thrilled uh, about what was going on under <laughs> Moose Shop. So, Not uh, cahoots. No, no, they, they were anti-cahoots. Um, they never mind. <laughs> uh, the you would think that there would be an easier way of like, I was thinking like can't hoots, but um, I just apparently I just went with it anyway. Um, what about in cahoots or or in katoots? Ah, yes, <laughs> two hacks. I was trying to think of cahoots backwards, anyway. Um <laughs> The boy would rush to a hidden door under the exchange cafe, give a secret knock, run down a tunnel to a second door and knock again. There he would be admitted to a room full of gamblers. So we have done 
the Al Capone tour, which is mm-hmm. called the Chicago Connection. Yeah, we did the fun one. Yeah. And when we did the tour, it was set up this way too, like with this story about the kid knocking and stuff. Uh, we were taken around by this actress and then we'd have to like, like, do you remember knocking on that like fireplace wall? Yep. And then it opened up and we like could go into the tunnels and shit like. Mm-hmm. And you had to like um, knock on certain things and like do the secret knock to get let into the next area. Yeah. Uh, so that like actually happened. Yes. Weird. Right? Some say the bootleggers strong armed the Chinese who were hiding uh, underground uh, to take over the tunnels. But there was some doubt and some believe that the Chinese people and bootleggers worked together in the tunnels. So. I yeah, mean, that uh, would be that would honestly be like a bit better of a turn. I would like that. But that probably means that it didn't happen. Mm hmm. Yeah, I don't know how um, the the tunnels, um, uh, the 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 lease on the tunnels was exchanged, um, mm. but yeah, that I I hope it was a, a relatively peaceful transfer of power. Yeah, or a sharing of it. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Also that. Also that. Yeah. It was also reported that there were even functioning speakeasies underneath the streets of Moose Jaw and all this hubbub of the tunnels under Moose Jaw is why there have been rumors that Al Capone was involved in the bootlegging industry and even lived in Moose Jaw briefly to avoid the feds, though only anecdotal evidence exists of that. Uh, But the idea of Al Capone having been in Moose Jaw is kind of its claim to fame. They've got the tunnel tour uh, named after him as well as Capone's Hideaway Hotel, which we should definitely stay at. I actually have stayed there before. Oh, have you? Yes. Yeah. Um, when I was uh, between jobs, uh, we went to Moose Jaw for uh, a weekend and uh, we, we decided to stay at uh, Capone's Hideaway. It is not themed in any way, shape or form. It is uh, very much just a shitty hotel. This podcast brought to you by Capone's Hideaway. Just Pay a me. shitty hotel. <laughs> it's just a shitty hotel. <laughs> ba, ba, da, ba, da, ba. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I'm sorry if that killed any illusion for anyone, but it is not a themed hotel, even a little bit. It's called Capone's Hideaway. It could be called the Musha Hotel, and no one would know any different. Okay, what if it's supposed to be like one of those experiences where you get out what you put into it Mm. so what if it's like you were like oh it's just a shitty hotel but if you had like knocked on a fireplace or some shit right you could have gone and had a delicious cocktail yeah in a speakeasy i mean we were pretty belligerent that weekend um so that (laughs) it it might it might have been um, a like a, a speakeasy type of a thing. And then they were just like, well, fuck these guys. Uh, we want nothing to do with them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We, we Whatever we decided the opposite of cahoots are, we want to be uh, that with them because um, we were probably pretty annoying then. So it, I, I may have missed out on the true experience of Capone's hideaway. But um, if I did, they were very, very secretive about it. So that is the Moose Jaw Tunnels. Yes. Uh, very honestly short. This should be like moose jaw tunnels adjacent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because again, when I was going through, it was just, it was actually really frustrating because you would find some people who were just like, well, 
how legitimate are these stories? And then there was someone, well, it actually turns out Chinese people were allowed to own laundromats back then. So what can you really believe? And it's like, okay, congratulations. They were allowed to own laundromats. Still not fantastic for them. Um, and then but there was one story that said, well, it, it's too bad because a lot of people who, um, who would have been alive at that time like aren't alive now, so we can't really interview them. And then one Google search found a story when they were first introducing the tunnels as a tourist attraction where they interviewed people from that time. So it, it wasn't actually that hard. And the guy actually confirmed a lot of the things that went on in the the, the tours. And obviously it's a dramatization. Um, like it's, it is a show to, to entertain you. I, I, I'm not going to say it's an absolute biography um of al capone or of the the chinese canadian experience there, there's going to be some dramatization in it but i think it's pretty well accurate so it was just it was actually um i found it very very frustrating that people were just instead of actually going out and again doing any kind of research it was more just well i'm just asking questions bro yeah look the devil doesn't need an advocate no no. So cut it out. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but also I do recommend like if you are in the Moose Jaw area, um, which is just Moose Jaw, like there, there isn't a whole lot around there. Um, <laughs> if you're ever in a field in Saskatchewan one day in the Moose Jaw area. Yeah. Um, I, I would recommend, I, I have not done the Chinese one, but have done the Al Capone one a couple of times and would absolutely recommend it. If nothing else, if you're of average height, it is a great time. <laughs> or you're below average height right yes yeah <laughs> so thank you for uh downloading this episode listening uh like peter said if you're in the field and you're in moose jaw for no good reason <laughs> uh tunnels definitely um recommend al capone's hideaway or sorry capone's hideaway mm -hmm. i mean if they sponsored this podcast i would say yeah go there but since they're fucking not right meh <laughs> uh and uh if you would like to leave a review rate subscribe uh all that good stuff you can wherever you like to listen to podcasts you can also send us an email we had no idea podcast at gmail.com you can also hit us up on instagram at we had no idea podcast yes and uh next week we will be looking at venezuela yes vague <laughs> yes we're gonna keep it vague because i i do think that there is a lot mm -hmm. um to i mean it's an entire country with an entire country's worth of history right uh, so we definitely are going to cherry pick a few uh events from their history and um kind of talk about maybe why venezuela looks like it does now mm -hmm. yeah that's going to kind of be the focus is how how did things take a turn the way that they did yeah. I would love to know what's going on in Venezuela. So yes. that's why we're going to do an episode on it. Yes. Yeah. And it turns <laughs> out when you say, well, we're out of ideas. So let us know. People get frustrated with you because um, we were at my sister's wedding. Congratulations, Rachel and Brandon. Um, Congrats. We at, 
we were at my sister's wedding and on the greatest day of her life uh, up until now, she still found the time to come get mad at us for saying we were out of suggestions, but we hadn't done what she suggested yet, uh, which we will be doing later on. So I'm not going to spoil it now, but uh, yes, my, my apologies for ever suggesting that there was not enough suggestions <laughs> out there. No, there is lots of suggestions. I will say that we have done a lot of North America centric ones recently. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's kind of what we're trying to escape from. So dear Rachel, if you want to, yes, South America, much different. (laughs) Um, if you want to give us more suggestions that didn't happen in America or Canada, maybe I'll be more receptive to them. Her one didn't, and we're doing that in a couple of weeks. Um, but yeah, she also had a lot of North American centered ones as well. Yeah. Which we would love to sprinkle in later. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really my fault because I hogged the America ones in the first little bit with ones that I wanted to do. Uh, so now, now I have to spread the wealth a little bit. Yeah. Um, so thank you again. Uh, we really appreciate you downloading the show and I know I say it all the time, uh, but I really hope that you guys learned something out of this podcast because I know I did. Yeah. I learned uh, a lot. And just like opening up, um, you know, my mind to, to history that like, wasn't this one. I'm certain was not taught to me, uh, having an Albertan education, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the episode that the episodes that we did on, uh, indigenous Canada and the history there, um, it's up for debate if my school curriculum taught any of it, um, some, (laughs) certainly not most of it. But certainly not all of it. Definitely not. And even uh, we're up for up for a new curriculum in this province and it still is barely mentioned. So, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. But this one definitely was not taught uh, in no. in Alberta. No. The, and the uh, only place it was taught in insane. the only place <laughs> it was taught in Saskatchewan is, again, in a tourist attraction uh, in southern Saskatchewan. Yeah. So thank you so much, and we will talk to you next week. All right. Bye. Bye.